0: Recently, I had the enormous pleasure of talking to Professor Jennifer Jenkins. She is the Chair of Global Englishes at the University of Southampton and the creator of ELF, English as a Lingua Franca. She has a unique and incredible perspective and insight into what it really means to be a teacher and learner and user of English in today's modern world. I hope you enjoy it. Jennifer Jenkins, thank you very much for, for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it.
1: You're very welcome. <laughs> um, I'm glad we made it. <laughs>
0: yes, we did. We did. I, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad because I'm such uh, a massive fan of your work. Um, and I was wondering if you could maybe just introduce yourself for people who, who don't know A lot about you
1: yeah okay I mean the work has changed I think the work that you're interested in is probably not work I'm doing anymore and haven't done for many years in fact but I mean it's fine if you're still interested in it Um, what actually happened uh, was that um, I studied linguistics earlier on um, when I was much much younger in my first degree And then I got very interested in old language, went to Oxford to work on old Icelandic, old English and then old Icelandic. Decided um, that wasn't terribly relevant to modern life and uh switched to um for a while I became an EFL teacher teacher of, it used to be called EFL now I think it's called ELT really yeah English language yeah. teaching rather than I I I mean I'm probably some people still call it English as a foreign language
0: yeah that, that's um, what I call it just because oh right yeah. okay oh, so
1: anyway I went to do that and very quickly I discovered, and I think partly because I had a background in linguistics and um, the social side of language, as we'd looked at sociolinguistics even all those decades ago, and I just very quickly realised that I was I was teaching in London. Um, by this time, I had a baby, and um, so I st- couldn't go very far away. I had to stay near home, and uh, I went to teach in an EFL school in Southeast London, and. We got people from everywhere there. We got people from, you know, literally Latin America, East Asia, um, all over Europe and and so on. Actually, not at that stage from the Middle East. Uh, That has obviously happened much, much more in the last 10, 15 years. but I had—I had, I have to say—I gave a talk about this recently, where there were some people who, including the director of Hoop, a man who had been director of studies at that school in the 1980s, <laughs> and, uh, and someone who had been a colleague there. And you know, I said at the time in my talk, they were the best times. I don't remember ever laughing as much, having such a good time. I mean, we had a marvelous time. What I realised was that these—they these, were obviously—they were quite. I mean, I wouldn't say elite, but they were middle-class kids and they were going into careers where they needed English. But very quickly, I realized that although they were bright and they did learn everything I taught them, and when they did the exams, they got very good marks, you know, they would get... I I was around for the very, very first Cambridge Advanced English, so I entered people for the very, very first one, and they mostly got A's, and if not A's, B's, you know, they were good. And um, yet they didn't use half the language I taught them when they were outside of being tested at any kind of assessment situation. So they then started to talk what I felt was their own English, and they understood each other pretty well. The reason I started on pronunciation was because where there were any problems, they were normally to do with pronunciation. They did sort them out very, very quickly. I didn't know about accommodation theory then. That was before I started studying for my PhD. But they very quickly adjusted so that they had a much better idea than I did of what each would understand Hmm. but mostly they were fine and we used to go down to the Italian restaurant once a month we used to go to the pub several times a week you know and they all taught English the way they wanted to and I did notice that um, a lot of the things they did were the same it didn't matter which language was their first so there were quite a lot of things and of course Hmm. I already knew about English about language change and the fact that languages are somehow predisposed to change in certain ways. It's a human ph- phenomenon to want to uh, regularize. Um, we all want to do it, however much we think we're anarchists. We all want to uh, do some regularizing of, of, of language and other things as well. And um, you know, one of the things that um, has happened over the centuries, really, with English is that the nouns that were we considered to be un countable have become countable and it's and they started doing they were doing this but they were doing it with ones that native english speakers don't (laughs) and so information advice and so on and so um people were saying they're making errors but, of course, all they're doing is speeding up. They're just accelerating the um, the change that's already happening anyway. And some things they did that native speakers haven't done, and that's because they have other languages to draw on. Mm. So they have a much richer linguistic repertoire than a monolingual native English speaker does, of course. Um, anyway, because of all this, I decided I, w- I really wanted to find out more about this. And so... Um, it was getting a bit routine just um, working in the language school, and I decided to do a PhD um, of <laughs> looking, that would look at. And that I, I did then immediately after my PhD, I called it English as a Lingua Franca, um, and decided it was quite neat because the EFL just switched to ELF, which was uh, I, I rather liked. But uh, and it seemed to take off after that. Um, I had looked at um, what happened with pronunciation. And I was finding that when I put people together uh, in, you know, I actually, sometimes it was naturally occurring because I, it naturally occurring is obviously better. So things like a parties, if I could just, you know, I was always with, walking around with a notebook. That was in the days when you didn't have little digital recorders or iPhones with recording on them. And you had this ruddy, great big square thing, a coomba, and with, with something that looked like an ice cream cornet that was the microphone. Wow. And, thought to set this up even in classrooms so that they weren't aware of it though eventually they took no notice they did often see when I was writing notes they said you know someone would just turn to me and say what have I said wrong now <laughs> 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 um, but it up, I collect all this and then what I found was that um, they the people who, I had a lot of data and they team the people who gave me the data they seemed to be um, They seem to be um, speaking with, I mean, I only looked at pronunciation, so I can't really comment on the rest, though the rest was there. But they seem to be speaking with um, their own, you know, transfer from their own first language, but very quickly adjusting it if they felt they were doing something that someone from another first language wouldn't understand and that's accommodation and you know what i found was that where their accents varied in their in you know in a patch of speech in a in a a little bit of speech where they changed it they were changing it because they were accommodating Mm. they discovering that somebody didn't understand if they said it that way and they were changing, it, but also they were getting familiar with um, what each other did. So, I mean, I've put a couple of very classic examples in my first book. There was, uh, the, when I was preparing pairs pe- for the CA, exam. very interesting because I had, in four of them, there were two Japanese and two Swiss German. And... Um, I paired them Japanese, Swiss, German because I wanted the data. Um, and the interesting thing was when it got towards the end and they'd had a lot of struggles over the time because it was really you know, high stakes for them, especially these very ambitious Swiss German men um, and these poor little Japanese girls who were very timid and very upset if they said something that wasn't understandable. But when it got to the week before the exam and I said, look, I'll ask you now. Would you like to switch and have the two two Swiss, you two Swiss German chaps together and the two Jap, Japanese ladies together? And they had heard their recordings. I always played back the recordings so they could hear what they were doing and so I could talk to them about it, they could explain it. And the very interesting thing was that they all said no. No our accent is much worse when we're speaking with each other. Wow. <laughs> and they were right. What they meant was they were accommodating. They were, sound, you know, that's the Swiss German. said, so they sound. we sound much more German when we speak together. Because I did record one with each of them in their same first language pair and played it to them as well as the ones that had, had the other language pair. And wow. uh, they did to do that. They actually wanted to stay with the person... With whom it was a little bit more difficult but we did i mean they over this was over many weeks and they did get familiar i mean there was this wonderful uh, example where the japanese students was describing a picture that had three lead cars in it um and he was looking the swiss chap was looking for um, a car to let a car to hire and then a month later when she talked about um, a house and she described it as a as a clay house um he frowned and he then said, "She then quickly said, grey. <laughs> <laughs> and when I talked with them, went through it with them afterwards, and he said, "Yeah, I know she always gets her L's and R's wrong," <laughs> and I had started to realise that's what she meant before she said it. <laughs>
0: wow. Well, I mean, this this is how I first came across your work is is the work that you did with with ELA, uh, English as a lingua franca and and pronunciation, and you published yeah. that that ELF pronunciation guide, which was basically almost like a condensed version. Well, this is how I viewed it as a teacher, right? But
1: you mean the lingua franca core? Yes, exactly, the core. The lingua franca core, yeah. Yeah,
0: and and for me, when I saw it, I was like, yes, this this is exactly the kind of materials that that we need as teachers. We, you know, there's no point trying to teach an intermediate student about um about how to, to to link all of their sounds together because they're just not it's just not something that you can teach and not something that they can really learn those things they come the with point? experience anyway, yeah.
1: it, it doesn't help the communication i mean i have to say there are some I, you're in spain aren't you yes yeah i mean do you have you heard of robin walker
0: uh, I haven't, no.
1: He produced a teacher's handbook based on the lingua franca core. And it does seem that he has always worked in Spain. He's there now, still decades later. But, you know, the, the feeling was that in Spain, people took very well, very quickly to this. this it, it seemed to be that some in some countries, they take better to it than others. But in oh. in Spain, it was very, very well received by those who came into contact with the ideas.
0: Well, I mean, I don't know why anybody would not want to follow a guide that that's you know that's that comes from empirical investigations that that is a sort of clear you know it's like a clear guide to to the important sounds in english it's like it it, to me it's it's an amazing piece of work anyway so so thank you for that well
1: that's very kind of you i mean i think that i mean quite a few people have tried replicating it try to see whether they get the same sorts of findings i think the word stress thing is a bit of a gray area i think it's not always clear whether how much because you know there there is the sort of slight anomaly with word stress and um nuclear stress or tonic stress because um you know if if it's not on the on the stress in the word and then you're saying or i'm saying nuclear stress is quite important um the question is what happens if when that is on the wrong part, but well, for, the, for British English or native English, the wrong. But, you know, British, because American and British are often on completely different syllables. Yes, You, have yes. Often, you know, the word detail in British English is detail in, in, in America. I mean, there are many, many examples of that.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, uh,
1: so um... it's not, you can't even talk about native English word stress. You can only talk about British uh, or well... American or
0: well, well th- this is the thing and 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 i know at the beginning of this conversation you said that um i'm i'm interested in in your earlier work and i am but but i'm also m- probably even more interested in, in your more recent work um especially when it comes to because i know that you've moved more from more from an investigative sort of um like a research and publication you've moved well it says on your website you've moved more towards higher policy right so maybe trying to, to make policy changes
1: it's still empirical work. I mean, okay. it's still been empirical work, but it's not been looking at linguistic features. Okay. It's been looking at issues, sociolinguistic issues, which I am... I mean, my interest in, in, in anything to do with accent was all pronunciation and phonology, phonetics. It was never in those for their own sake. I'm not a phonetician, <laughs> and I've never been interested in just looking at those sorts of things. Um, I've always been interested in the social side of accent rather than in um just you know how people produce the sound or how it travels in the airwaves or whatever or in <laughs> auditory phonetics how people receive it you know i'm not particularly interested in those at all i'm interested in the social side of accent yeah. um and so i was particularly interested in the social side of accent in english as a lingua franca um and uh, as well as you know initially the intelligibility but then i moved from that into looking at much more to do with things to do with you know the soci- the social side of it what yeah. you know how people respond to it but then i moved i moved um after that into um, you know having looked at the sort of whole attitudes business i was interested in the whole business of you know what people's attitudes to not well to non native english and particularly to english as a lingua franca um which was the second book, and then after that, I got very interested in in more to do with applications of this. And, and my main interest, because I'm in, the, I work in the in the area, is higher education. Mm-hmm. So I got very interested. It, it was a time when more and more. Um, Students from many other countries were, were traveling to to study in higher education in universities around the world. And particularly they were traveling to the UK. So in the UK, we have the highest percentage of so-called international students. I've always said I think that's a rather strange term because doesn't everybody want to be international? Why do we use it just for the people who pay the high fees? Um, and <laughs> But, uh, and the rest are just called home, and they certainly are very home, you know, in their outlook. Most, I probably shouldn't say this if this is going to be used, but um, in the UK, um, they probably, um, you know, and they think of the, um, they'll go around correcting the English of the international students and so on, um, and think that, and don't have any sense that their own English. Might not be the best to use in in an international setting, which of course the university is. Um, yeah. So I got very interested in that. At the moment, I'm trying to actually get my own university to make changes to its um, what it, well, well, to have a stated language policy because they mostly don't actually state it. Mm. Um, and uh, and then to make changes to, to make it because you can't call yourself international and then carry on operating on national lines as you did thirty years ago. Mm. And that's what we've got. I've been trying to tell one of um, our our, pre- our vice president international of internationalisation that that. We we make a big fuss about being international, but it's entirely symbolic, not at all transformational. I mean, we've got to we've got to move away from from just symbols of of, of, of internationalisation to actually transforming what goes on. Well, and, I mean, you know, yeah, maybe. A lot maybe of ideas.
0: I mean, um, maybe that's then, something that's something really interesting about your work is It, it isn't just. Um, you know theoretical stuff it's it actually talks about practical solutions yeah. and well I mean oh, yeah you know I, and this is just my opinion you know th- there's kind of not really much point <laughs> maybe I'm wrong about this maybe I'm going to offend a lot of people but there's not much point doing doing research if you're not going to sort of implement the findings right I think
1: it's something has got to change as a result of the research I mean it could be Something that not as as widely practical as the sort of thing I do, but um, it can't be just be so what research as, as people call it. You know, you you read about it, very interesting findings, but so what? Yeah, um, it's got to be. It's got to be. Um, some kind of you know it, it can be small and in this case we got to start off small but we're trying very hard i mean i've just a, a book that i've co-edited with um, another colleague in english as a lingua franca anna maurinen at helsinki university is literally just coming out now it's available online it's coming out hard copy very soon i think next week or so uh, it's called linguistic diversity on the international on the emi campus and it's a project with nine universities each one in a different country Okay. and each one a team of people in that university looked at the same research questions we led the project it was a three-year project funded by Helsinki and Southampton and uh, and they each looked at a number of things and we decided on the data collection methods we'd all use um, a, a selection of the same methods and then we um each wrote our own chapter and Anna and I wrote um you know, introduction and conclusion, putting it all together, and what did we find? And, I mean, I don't think I can give you a prize if, if, if you guess which of the nine universities came out worst of the lot.
0: Um, probably the, probably the UK university, right?
1: It was. it was <laughs> it, The approach to diversity was dreadful. Wow. It's a monolingual campus. Wow. It really is.
0: Wow. You know,
1: uh, even Monash, the Australian one was monolingual, Nash, and it did by comparison with the UK which was Southampton huh. um, yeah and wow. um, I mean Southampton did very badly of course all the others are, are much they're in a better starting position because they are already in a country where another language is the first language and in, in a sense that puts their international students in a better position because they can feel much more comfortable because they are with home students who are also not native English speakers yeah so they have. they have a, um, a more equal um, they're all more equal and one of the things that um, because I've been working on in, in testing of English language and you know one of the things that um, that you find is, is how unfair things are
0: well well that this is this is something are, I, I um, wanted to this is something I wanted to talk to you about is your the, the keynote you gave um, and the title of the keynote was Time for an End to Standardized English Language Tests. Um, you know, which is quite a... Which is wait, quite. Wait, a,
1: where did I do that? Um,
0: in January 2018 for the British Council.
1: Oh, that was the one, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, and that's now published. I mean, I did the research, well, it wasn't really research so much. it was it was a conceptual piece, but a very long conceptual piece with Constant Lung, my colleague from um, King's College London, who I was there with for fifteen years, um, and he's still there. and we work together. In fact, we're doing a pilot now with the University of the Arts London, trying out some of these ideas, but we published this um the article on which that talk was based, we published it in um, the journal Language Teaching uh, Uh, volume. Yes, I
0: I read it, yes.
1: Oh, you know, you know about it. So that's just a longer, more complicated um, version of the talk I gave. But in that talk, of course, I didn't, um, because we had agreed, Constant and I had agreed, um, that neither he nor I would reveal what our solution was what our proposed solution was until the article was published so that meant we couldn't actually we both gave talks all over the place but we couldn't actually we just left people
0: well I mean, there we, was a, <laughs> there was so much fascinating stuff in that paper but um, i mean one of the one of the interesting things that you talk about for me is that you sort of in a way you you destroy the idea of well if we're talking about specifically about english exams the first thing is that you, you basically prove that there's no relationship between um, your your exam result in in IELTS or TOEFL there's no there's no yeah. correlation between that and your academic results
1: yeah
0: so so basically yeah they haven't been able to prove it at
1: all
0: yeah so so which is which is a very important and probably shocking well, it's not shocking to me, but it might be shocking to people to realize that that you know your your exam results have nothing to do with your capability to succeed at learning, right?
1: Yes, I mean, when I did the um research for my um last monograph, the one the one on international language policy in the international university um which came out a few years One of the things um, I did for that was I interviewed a lot of postgraduate students in my university, from all around the university. You know, they were from all the different um, faculties, disciplines, and. They could all talk about people they'd known, friends they'd had who didn't get a high enough score in IELTS to be accepted. And they would say, and, you know, I remember saying to one of them, what do you think would have happened if she'd come? Oh, she'd have been fine, she Mm. said. Mm. Another one told me about um, a a student on her course who had got nine in IELTS and couldn't cope and left after Mm. the first term. Yeah. I mean you know it's shocking and it's not just that it's also the fact that IELTS gives you a completely false picture of the way you're going to be communicating and this is why we're arguing so strongly for context
0: yes and I mean yeah like we, in, the, in, in, your, in your paper you said that um, yeah. you, you
1: said it has that to be it has to be um, the kind of English that's going to be and other languages that will be used when they get there and the only people that know that are the, the people who work there in, in the, on the courses that the students are applying for. And the only people who know whether they can manage it or not will be the student if they have materials to look at. Mm. And between them, between the staff and the students, they can decide um, together whether some it's a time-consuming business, but it's, it's going to, it would be a lot more effective. So yeah, well, um,
0: well, well, that's right. I mean, I mean, for, for me, one one very telling thing about the IELTS exam is because you know they publish the results of the exam every year, and you will see that people who 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 put that English is their first language, so basically native English speakers, actually do worse in IELTS than than, for example, Germans. Uh, so, yes. So how how can it? <laughs> so clearly, it's not a good measure of your of your English ability if if even native speakers can't get perfect results. I mean. Do
1: you know, I once tried the Cambridge proficiency exam just for fun, the use of English paper, and I didn't get an A. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. It's like a class honor's degree in English language. <laughs>
0: uh, another really interesting thing that you talk about when you talk about exams is you you which is something similar to what I'm interested in is, you know, most people who are learning a language, they are obsessed with comparing themselves to native speakers. It's, it's like they want a native accent. They want, they, they want a native teacher. And, and even like, I I have comments on my YouTube channel and people say, um, are you speaking with a British accent? Because if you are, can you please tell me, because I want a teacher who speaks American <laughs> English. It's like, really? Um, and and, and, and you, you, you say that we should eliminate the idea of a native speaker, and we should talk about people as local speakers. Um, yeah,
1: I mean, yeah. I mean, a good local speaker, somebody in whichever context you're in, who is making themselves easily understood to everybody and understands everybody, and that has very little to do with being a native speaker. In fact, it's weird, isn't it, that you know, native English speakers, particularly British—I can't speak for American because I don't know for a fact—but British are heavily monolingual, and people are wanting to base their their English. On people who haven't been able to learn another language i mean you know people who are learning a language are actually using as their model someone who is not capable of learning or hasn't been capable of learning another language it seems strange doesn't it it, um, it does but, but yeah i mean it, it, but it, it is a fixation and um it's, I mean, it goes back to imperialism and all sorts, but I've got a colleague, um, Jane Setter. She's a real phonetician at, at Reading University, Professor Jane Setter. And uh, But she also works in sociolinguistic areas as well, and she's done some very good work on Hong Kong and literary English in Hong Kong. Okay. She was giving a talk about this, I think it might have been in Russia, and when she got to the end of her talk, somebody asked her to carry on um, talking about could she say more and she carried on for about 10 minutes and then she said well have I said enough but have I covered enough and she said oh no I wasn't listening to what you were saying it's your accent I love
0: <laughs> oh god uh, well I mean I have to admit that some some accents are very beautiful you know some people do have a way of speaking which is very attractive but but
1: usually, it's not a native speaker of English. Usually, it's someone you know. It's like someone from some other country.
0: <laughs> I mean, yeah. In 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 my experience, one one thing that that native English speakers are very bad at is accommodating other people. Oh yeah. Like yeah. like because you know because I have so many years' experience with foreign students, I know yeah. to avoid. To avoid certain phrasal verbs and to avoid, you know, very specific vocabulary or idioms that that are just are not the kind of vocabulary or, or yeah. grammatical constructions that people who are learning a language would know.
1: Well, not even learning, using. I mean, that's the point about the local speaker. The local speaker knows which local language... Um, People, you know, if you're talking about, say, local in a university, well, and it's in a UK university that has a very high proportion of international students from around the world, um, the local, um, what is locally easily understood for the majority, is not lo- is not British idiomatic English yeah. and not phrasal verbs. They are not well understood. And that's why you so often find that international students say they understand each other much better than they understand the native English students, the home yeah. students. Yeah. Because the home yeah. students don't make adjustments for the local context, for the local you know, communication. Yeah, when I say exactly. local, I don't mean just geographically local. I mean um, local in the sense of the context of the of of, of communic- the communication context.
0: Yeah. Okay. So so local local isn't just about like uh like a geographical place. Local is like the environment, the maybe the the level of formality, like like everything. Is that?
1: Yeah. Which languages people speak particularly? So in that in that environment, which languages, and therefore which kinds of English do people speak? And you know, if 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 you've got a very large proportion of home students i guess you know you they're going to use their own idiomatic language but you know it's not appropriate if you've got a large proportion of people from other parts of the world
0: yeah i mean one one thing which is sort of related to this which which is a question i have in in my own mind you know is that there's there's kind of versions of english um which which have like, like globish for example which which is like a, a version of English with a very limited set of vocabulary and grammar yeah
1: but it 's made up it's not based on empirical data it's just what Jean paul Noyer has made up he's invented it
0: yeah and, exactly uh, and, and and I think so, what, like some of the criticism that i 've read is that well, what you're actually doing is you're you're limiting you're, you're saying that that yeah. you only have this language to use, and so you're limiting people's ability to Oh, absolutely. I mean,
1: English as a lingua franca is exactly the opposite. It doesn't do any limiting. And in fact, you know, the idea of English as a multilingual franca, which is what I moved on to two or three years ago, where we need to pay much more attention to the other languages of elf users um, you know it's not just that, that you know they have a much richer resource to draw on if they have other languages and and they can draw on all of that depending on who they're talking with and that can include drawing on other languages mm-hmm. so they, they can do what's called translanguaging they're in and out of other languages <laughs> um, if that's appropriate at that moment mm-hmm. um, in that conversation obviously not leaving anybody behind so you don't do it if somebody doesn't speak another language Particular language, but it's a much richer thing. It's, it, there are no limits on it. The only limit is that you need to try and accommodate.
0: Yes, but yes.
1: That, that, that's your judgment. Um, other than you know the limit, the, the accommodation, which is not a linguistic limit. It's it, you know it's not limiting the language. It's just uh, it, uh, trying to persuade people that they need to make sure their language is suitable for for the particular context. But that's yeah. it. You know, it's not like Navier's 150 words or whatever, or is it 1,500? I'm not sure. Yeah, I think
0: I think it's 1,500. I'm not sure because I never really looked yeah. at the um, at, at the at the list. You know.
1: And you know, I I, I want, you know, I wanted to say to him, how did you decide? How do you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. You know, <laughs> who says? Yes. Who says? I don't. These words, you know. <laughs> well, it,
0: it's so funny. I mean, um, the, the more that you learn about language, the more you realize that so many things that that become what we consider rules have originated from people just sort of making something up and
1: Exactly. And people exactly, blindly yeah. following
0: it. It's well, it's like, it's
1: like, you know, based. it's often based on mathematics and Latin. I mean, a lot of the earlier rules were, were very much based on That's why we're not supposed to. I mean, still people do this. They say you mustn't split an infinitive. And the only reason that that became a rule was because in Latin, the infinitive is part of the verb. It's not separate. So you can't split it. You know, do something is one word, you know, uh, you know.
0: It's incredible, isn't it? It's incredible, and and even you know, if you look at the some of the famous style guides like Strunk and White, you know, and and, you know, they're just a couple of guys who just made up some stuff that they personally uh, liked.
1: The double negative based on mass, two negatives make a positive. Yeah, but Chaucer would use two or three in a sentence. So did Shakespeare, you know, and nobody's criticised them. And Jane Austen did as well, you yeah. know. I mean, it just reinforces the negativity of the point. Yes, um, yes, exactly. Yeah, because it became associated with um, sort of socially uh, lower class people, um, it, it, it's very—it it really is ostracised and stigmatised. Even, you know, I remember somebody once saying—I can't remember where I read this—that if somebody uses even one double negative, <laughs>
0: sorry, sorry. You're a weird cat.
1: I'm hoping mine will come up so you can see. <laughs> now, if somebody uses even one double negative, they then know that they're a lower social class
0: god i mean i mean that, that that's that's amazing um i mean that's well that that's that's something which which fascinates me personally about languages is how much of languages is is, is part of culture and and you know um all, all of the stuff that comes with that like 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 you say the 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 because
1: romance languages have um have double negatives I mean, don't they? It's not a problem in... in, I'm I'm not good on Spanish, but French, I know, has double negatives. Yeah, Spanish has
0: double negatives, absolutely, yeah. I thought
1: Spanish
0: did, yeah. So so, something I wanted to just ask you is, you know, because you you have so much experience in the world of... of, Well, you really understand the social side of language learning and, and the research, and, I mean, what do you think of the state in general of language teaching? In your experience
1: um, um, to be honest i don 't know I 've been so detached from it for the last twenty years that I haven't re- I don 't really know what goes on any longer okay. um, and it depends what you mean by language teaching I think probably a lot of it is pretty um, I mean not thinking about English now thinking about other languages I think um, they were very slow to start teaching a more communicative type of of, of language use. Um, it was definitely EFL that became the first to do that, as far as I know. Mm. Um, but within English, I would say that um, it's still too controlled by um, people who are just haven't caught up with the way the world is now, mm. that, that, that they are still focusing too much on the idea that people learn a language to talk to its native speakers. And, you know, I noticed um, among my colleagues, I mean, I'm in the Department of Modern Languages and it's now Modern Languages and Linguistics, it used to be just Modern Languages, Um, but I noticed that, um, you know, sometimes if um, we're working on a project with a group of people from other countries and and somebody uses um, English that isn't native-like, you know, they may be French, they may be um, Spanish, they may be uh, Italian or whatever. and you know, the attitude seems to be, this would be with someone who's done a major, did their first degree in Spanish. The whole thing was in Spanish, or it was in German or it was in French, and they speak it like the natives do. Um, well, I could do it. Why can't they? And they haven't got the notion of a language that is simply a lingua franca, a tool of communication. It is not learned. It, it, its purpose is not, even if it's still taught as if its purpose is to talk to the natives. That is not what it's for. In the 21st century, English is a language of global communication. And most of that is not with native English speakers because there aren't enough of us. Yeah. Uh, you know, most time, most people don't even meet one. <laughs>
0: okay. Well, exactly. I, I read that... Um and, and, I, and I I read, and I, I think it's true, that, that 85% of conversations are, are between non-native speakers in English. It
1: probably is true, yes. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly a very, very large um, number would be, uh, a, you know, I would say probably a very large proportion of English that's used around the world on any daily basis. Well, not even daily, but in any one day. Um, it's probably among people who are not first language speakers or in a group where the majority are not first language speakers of English. And I don't think, I mean, I think ELF is starting to um, filter in to, I mean, a, a lot of the exam boards, you know, the teacher training exams are now mentioning it, but they haven't really worked out. They, they don't really understand what it is. They think it's another kind of world English is. They think it's a variety of English, which absolutely is not. Um, they don't really know what to do about it. And I don't think teaching has actually caught up with this yet. And Mm. I can understand the problem because if you're dealing with something that isn't in any sense fixed or relatively fixed, the problem is then going to be what do you teach? And you do have to teach something. Mm. I mean, and so the problem is they need to teach English, but they then need to move away from those basic rules to a situation where people use English in order to be understood and to build rapport and all the rest which may not mean sticking with those that they've just learned and that's quite complicated, it's going to take some clever people to produce materials that can sort that out.
0: Yeah, I mean um, because I've I've only ever taught in, in Spain, I've never taught in any other country and I thought that all of the things that I was experiencing here, I thought that maybe they were a result of Spanish culture. Like, for example, the obsession with exam results, the obsession with teaching grammar, the obsession with, you kind of wrote memorization. But then, you know, when I started my YouTube channel and when I spent more time on, on Reddit, which is, a, uh, which is a website where, you know, you've got language learners from all over the world, the more I realized that that I think the problems are universal that yeah, um, oh, yeah. yeah. you know that the people um just you know like even even questions like um if i know if i know 5000 words what is my cefr level am i a1 or a2 like, <laughs> you know questions like this that i just I, yeah, I, I just can't believe it. You know,
1: I, I mean, it. it's shocking that uh, is being used everywhere as a benchmark, and um, it's based entirely on how close you are to the native speaker of the language. And okay, I can understand that in some situations, what you want to do is blend in in the country wow. or with that group, and therefore the thing you really want and that will be useful to you is to get as close as you can to the native version of or, or a native version of that language, but. That is mostly not so with English and therefore and to some extent I would say with Spanish with Spanish is also a global language mm-hmm. and um, in fact I've got a colleague who was my PhD student and her PhD was about this, <laughs> about how Spanish people orient to, um, to English uh, as a lingua franca when their, their own language is also a lingua franca. Wow. Um, and so, which is very interesting, she's now teaching at Southampton, um, but, yeah.
0: So, it, well, what, what, I mean, what, what, what would you say to, to all of those students who maybe have grown up with the mentality that, you know, they, they want to speak like a native speaker, they want to have a native accent, you know, what, what, would, you, what would you say to that student?
1: What I usually say to if it's one student, I say, well, which native speaker do you, do you mean? <laughs> I mean, because, you know, there are so many different versions of native English anyway. Um, but, I mean, I think what I'd say to them is "Is why. Mm. Why do you think you need this? Why do you think you want this? Because, I mean, to my ears, native English doesn't sound particularly attractive. It That is then totally personal attitude and judgment I mean you know there is no such thing as a beautiful language and an ugly language it's all in the ears of the of of the hearer Uh, and um, you know everybody hears differently but I would just say you know that they should they should think about where they're using their English or where they will be using their English and think about how people in those situations are using English and whether native English is actually going to be particularly helpful or not Mm. and if not (laughs) um, do they still want it or you know what is the reason for wanting it is it just to show that they can do it because it shows the level of attainment or what
0: well I think probably because um, because their their teachers you know um, tell them that that, that's you know that, that that's the objective right that if if you if you can speak like a native speaker, then then you win, right? It's over, right? Like, you know? And
1: I, I mean, I think they need to know things like that. Most native English speakers are monolingual, um, and yeah. you know, don't aren't able to draw on other languages. They need to know that most native speakers of English are not very good at talking, um, making themselves understood, or at understanding, you know, in situations where people come from a range of backgrounds, language backgrounds. Mm. Um, and that actually, when you look at at research, you, what you find is that non-native English speakers are generally much more competent <laughs> in terms of communication skills. Yeah, they communicate better.
0: It's 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 incredible. And um, you know, is it do you, do you think it's just a question of 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 marketing? Like how how did um, how did native English speakers achieve this kind of status? You know.
1: Um. Yeah, I mean, well, there have already been all sorts of books about the native speaker and the myth of the native speaker and so on. And uh, you know, I think probably in, rather than rather than um, uh, attacking the native speaker myth because it is a myth, the best thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh god. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> would be um, a person who comes up with a course that can actually demonstrate how, you know, that that will actually enable teachers to teach their students English to use it as a lingua franca and which, as part of that course, can demonstrate that native English is not as useful as lingua franca which is not native but has aspects of native English in it the person who can do that I think is going to become a millionaire (laughs) even more like those books that people first books you know the first headway books and all those ones to go really communicative Um, I think the person that produces the first course book that really really um, solves the problem of how how to provide materials um, and, you know, generally sort of theoretical background for teachers, you know, pedagogical information um, that can demonstrate how we can do this, preferably not targeting any one language, but giving scope, um, mm. you know, any one language background, any one country, but giving scope for people to um, put into it whatever is relevant, you know, so in your country, the organization. Country's case, it would be, you know, Spanish teachers working out for themselves what they think of Spanish, you know, yeah. what would go in. I mean, I, I don't know. I, this is just not something I could do. But, um, you know, what it needs is, is, is a way of demonstrating to people that actually English as a lingua franca users are very much more um, more relevant, more competent, more skilled, better communicators, Hmm. um, and that people who stick rigidly to native English are actually the opposite of all those things.
0: Wow. And Uh, that
1: native uh... English has a one purpose, that's for conversation between native English speakers. Uh, And that's something that by definition a non-native speaker can't take part in. Yes. Yes. It it, it is purely, um, native English is relevant purely for communication among native English speakers. Nothing else.
0: Um, well i never i never really um, even thought about it like that before um, that's a really interesting like point of view a really a really interesting philosophy. i mean th- this is what i think i think that, that the workbook that you're talking about this course book i don't know if it's even i don't know if it's even about the material it's it's more of a a, a change in mentality right yeah um, yeah that, that's but how I, teachers
1: still need something to hang on to so there needs need to be something but it could be something very different from a traditional type of course book yeah. um, something where they have much more input into it themselves yes, um, yes,
0: exactly um, based on
1: their own knowledge of their own setting and their own students but yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Like, like, the, like, like you were saying about being a local, a local maybe yeah, like you have a are, local speaker and a local, local teacher to, yeah,
1: they're the local speaker
0: well, um, just 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 one just one, one If we could just go back just a little bit to talk a little bit more about exams, because uh, because uh, because th- there are so many students who who use exams as the only way that they have to measure. The only way that's important to them to measure their English ability is like, you know, I got the B2, I'm a B2, I'm a B2, you know, it's like, yeah. Or, yeah. Or, 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 or as you said before, you know, students who maybe um, who want to go to university, but they don't get the result they need. So they can't have that opportunity. So the exam, you know, basically so much for some students, so much of, of everything they do revolves around exams. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what, you know... What do you think needs to change about that?
1: Well, unfortunately, they have to pass these exams to get into their next stage. So whatever it is, whether it's to get into university or get into a particular job or whatever, they, they have to have these. And until we can persuade the exam boards to change their approach, um, the students will have to do this. But, you know, what? so it, it's this really is a top-down thing mm. um, where... We're working very hard. I mean, Constant and I, and Constant has been doing a lot of uh, talks with the British Council recently and so on. And we are trying very hard to persuade them that that the exams need to change. Um, and they are starting to listen. I mean, they are starting to um, get involved in, in what we've written and what we're saying yeah. in talks and so on, they are actually getting interested in this. And, um, you know, so as long as we show that they're not going you know, that there is a place for them in, you know, being consultants to the new styles of exam and so on. As long as we can um, not say we think that they just need to be thrown out altogether. Um, <laughs> I hope that the exam boards, you know, particularly um, Cambridge, whatever it calls itself these days, it changes its name pretty much every year these days. I think it's called that Cambridge English Assessment, is it?
0: Uh, probably, When I yes, started yes. it was
1: Apple, and then it changed, and then it changed again, and I don't know, but whatever it's called. The one that does IELTS and all the Cambridge exams, and then there's Trinity, and then there are others. There's the,
0: the, the sefer I think is a British council thing isn't it? Yeah well I mean I mean this is because when, when I saw that you'd given a keynote and the keynote was called time for an End to Standardize <laughs> English tests and, and it was hosted by the British Council who are involved in IELTS, I thought, well, it, How was, it is this was possible?
1: <laughs> well, they didn't know. They, they only asked me as the keynote. They didn't know what I was going to talk about. Quite <laughs> <laughs> awkward, because um, I, 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 you know, I, it was the British Council and and, and Thailand, uh, the Thai University, Kassetsar, uh, and, and between them were, were funding this workshop um, for 30 people, 15 Thais and 15 Brits, who are all interested in this field to um not testing necessarily but english the lingua franca in in asia or southeast asia um to go and 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 have this week they didn't know i mean i gave my title quite late but i was assured i was doing the opening plenary and then the um time my thai counterpart was going to do one the next day um and i was assured that they There was only one person from the British Council who was there to welcome everybody and introduce it, but in previous years he had always then left, and I was assured he would leave because um, there were things I was going to say that I wouldn't want to have said in front of the British Council. So he did it all, and then we were having a short break, whereupon he came over to me and said, I'm really looking forward to your talk (laughs) So I then have to very quickly go onto the on my computer and remove some of my talk.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Wow! But I mean, I that...
1: sat, sat on the edge of his seat right through. We you know, sort of you know, listening to every word of it. <laughs>
0: I mean, you you have um uh, you you have a lot of uh, well, what's the word? A lot of uh, chutzpah to sort of.
1: To sort of, to,
0: to, uh, I admire that. That's, that's, a, that's a beautiful thing.
1: <laughs> well, you know, at my stage in my career, it doesn't really matter. You know, if I offend people, it doesn't matter because I don't need them to help my career. <laughs>
0: no, no, sure. I get it. You, you're, Nothing you're... I do is
1: going really to change my CV in any, in any way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my CV is my CV and it doesn't really matter what I do. So, you
0: know. In, the, in the, the, the field that you work in, how how sort of alone do you feel i mean how how many people working in in you know like the the teaching and exams how many people share your your philosophy are, are you an outsider
1: well when i started i mean people thought i was completely mad i mean you know they really <laughs> wow. did you know what on earth are you going to why would you do that for a phd sort of thing it really was you know um, wow and for quite a while after I finished it and started work giving talks, well, even while I was doing the PhD, I gave talks. But people got very interested very quickly. People do like something new. And even though it had its enemies, both it had it, it was it, it was ironic, really. It had enemies from world Englishers who look at varieties like Indian English and Singapore English and so on, and they didn't like it because they didn't like this idea that there was this phenomenon that basically might, sort of somehow damage them because it's looking at you know the sorts of things we're talking about in ELF could look as like errors and -hmm. then you know they're not fixed they're not fixed like you know they they could describe indian english on the other hand it was elt who disliked it because they said the opposite reason um the world Englishes people thought we were coming up with some monolithic version of the to compete with World Englishes, ELT thought we were saying anything goes. And so we were right in the middle. And at first I was one of a very small number of people. Very quickly, some people like Anna Mauer and then Barbara Seidelhofer um, got interested. Um, but it it seemed to cause a lot of interest quite quickly. And I would say, in Constant Loom said to me, we spoke we spoke the other day um, and um, reckoned that, ELF is now a mainstream.
0: Hmm.
1: It has become mainstream. I I mean, it's, we've got to the stage now where nobody who talks about it explains what it is at the beginning. <laughs> there used to be a time when I needed to explain what it was.
0: Okay, so, um, so, so, now, so now...
1: Your audience already know what it is. Um, but I don't feel. I mean, I'm surrounded. I've got lots of people at Southampton in the Centre for Global Englishes that I set up some years back, uh, who are all very interested. We get loads of PhD students wow. um, coming from all over the world to do PhDs in our centre in the, in the field. And um, I've got colleagues all over. Wow. Um, we have a, every year. We have an ELF conference. It's in Colombo. In Medellin, um, this July. Wow. Um, last year it was, oh, last year it was London. The year before that it was Helsinki. The year before that it was actually in Yeda in Spain, in Catalonia. Oh, okay. Um, so it, and it's been in Hong Kong. It's been in, it's going to be in Taiwan next year and Japan the year after. Wow. It's been all
0: over. Wow. I mean. So
1: what? we have, we have a journal. There's a journal of English. I mean, really it, I mean I felt quite alone at the beginning and it was quite a big risk then because I was sort of early to mid-career when I started this Um,
0: yeah I mean I just (laughs) I just I just feel like um you know from from a teaching perspective you know and, and I haven't been doing it very long I've only been doing it for 10 years working as a teacher and I suppose I just feel like um if if there is going to be any change that 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 and I'm talking about more like the philosophy of, of, of teaching in general of, of teaching languages especially English that, that that maybe what's required is more of a of, of, of a kind of an uprising like a bit of anarchy you know <laughs> where the teachers say you know what we don't want to do the workbooks anymore in class you yeah, know, yeah. you know we yeah. don't almost like a kind of a, a revolution from the inside I you would mean like
1: your to Greta Thunberg of the, of the ELT. But one of my Ta- Taiwanese students did describe it. She said, this is revolution. We need a revolution. We
0: do. I mean, I, I, think, I think for me, what, what I, you know, it's, it's really upsetting to see, especially primary school children, you know, and it gets worse when they go through high school, but it's, it's upsetting to see people who've been learning English in a classroom setting for like an hour a day for five years, and they've just got nothing. You know, they yeah. can't even have a... Cu- and I just... I feel like it's a waste, yeah. you know, a waste of, of time.
1: Well, it is. It really is.
0: Mm. Um, yeah. And it is <laughs> um, Well, um, th- thank you so much for, for talking to me. Oh, you're I-
1: very welcome. I-, I
0: really... I really, It's given me a lot to think about. Um, and, and it's just, I suppose... I suppose I'm sort of a little bit surprised as well at how at how much your thinking is 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 the same as mine, you know, like oh. like like in terms of I, I don't know I, I um like like I said I didn't expect you to be so um, sort of I don't know hardcore maybe <laughs> What's, you know yeah like just just um. Uh, <laughs> because, because, you know, a, a lot of uh, I feel like changes, you know, in the industry Change is very slow um, Oh, it is mm.
1: It's very slow because testing is very slow And conservative, because the testing boards make Zillions, they make a lot of money They don't want to risk losing that money And because they are in charge Of the tests Everybody has to um, Conform In order for their students to pass the tests So that's why we have to get the testers to change
0: Wow. Okay. Well, um, yeah. It's re- it's really given me a lot to think about, and um, and, and I'd be um, well, I'd be interested in, um, in in having a crack, having a crack at trying to to create some some teaching resources that that, that yeah, could do. to, to incite revolution.
1: Do. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes.
0: I hope that that conversation is a reminder that. Two of the key things that we use to measure success in English learning, which are to be like a native speaker and to pass that exam, are wrong. The only measure that you need to worry about is can you communicate effectively and nothing else is really
1: important. I'm Christian. This is Kangaroo English. I'll see you in class.